So in honor of President's Day coming up next week, we thought we'd focus on presidential immunity. Do you see what I did there? What a bump. Yeah, it's that kind of episode, people. <laughs> now hang tight, because if your eyes have maybe, I don't know, glazed over when you see articles about presidential immunity in your newsfeed, or you change the channel when the news starts, the latest legal updates about this, you, my friends, are just like me. Or if you read the news on the day that we're recording this and think, hey, so maybe this is going to be a non-issue, which I literally texted me, Sasha, <laughs> when I saw the news headlines. Let's not forget that there's almost always an appeal in our legal system and there's precedent. And that's why I am the right person to tell you, keep your hands off the skip episode button. Because Misasha put together an incredibly relevant, funny, light, but really actually impactful way for you to understand why you and I actually really need to care about presidential immunity. With this episode, we're actually kicking off a new Why Should We Care About series on Dear White Women, where we focus on the why behind important issues so that we can go into November making the most informed decisions we can about the candidates and their platforms. So whether you A, think you know everything you need to know about presidential immunity, or B, you don't care, or maybe C, who cares anyway because this is about Trump and he's going to be the nominee anyway, so what I think doesn't even matter, get ready. We're diving in. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your very multi-ethnic friends here, co-hosts, Japanese and white, Sarah and me, Sasha. All right. So this is kind of a tall order, but we're going to do this because I often hear people say, explain this to me like I'm four years old. So I'm going to kick this whole series off by explaining the concept of presidential immunity to everyone like you're in fourth grade, because I happen to have a fourth grader right now. And so I think, and this is not just related to presidential immunity, but I often think, how would I tell him what's happening in a way that he could understand? All right. So we're going to have to set the scene first, and I'm going to have to take you a whole year back. So you're in third grade right now. And your school's student council president is named Johnny. Now, let's see. Johnny ran a questionable campaign, like in third grade, in which he attacked Mark, his former rival, throughout the week-long period where, you know, you could hang your homemade campaign posters up. But he was also fairly charming with some classmates and promised them a whole bunch of stuff that they wanted, like... He would stock the vending machine with sodas. He'd make the sodas cost less if you voted for him, but only for those people who voted for him. And he'd make sure that those pesky little second graders never even came close to the soda machine. So this is like an example, but are you with me? Yes, I can totally see this. And I love the handmade posters too. Okay. I mean, this is real life elementary school, right? So a lot of people were unhappy with Johnny during this third grade year as student council president, because it turns out that Johnny was only in student council for Johnny and his own popularity, which no one could have foreseen, okay, except most people at the time of the election. He didn't listen to many of the other student council members. He vetoed a number of things that he personally didn't like, and in doing so made several students cry each time because those things would have been good for other people. He largely ignored teachers because he had documented issues with authority. He favored the male students over the female ones. He ignored or made fun of younger students. He didn't follow through with many of his campaign promises. Anyway, okay, you get the idea. Yet, despite all of these issues, Johnny has a core friend group 
who were outside of student council, although, okay, a few were in student council and largely just went along with whatever Johnny said, who loved having Johnny in student council for their own reasons. All right. So that was third grade. So fast forward to the start of fourth grade. And here we go. It is student council election time again. Johnny is, of course, running again because he had so much fun the first time that he feels like it's really his destiny to do it again. And his core group is definitely supporting him. This time he's running against Martha and Martha's platform is basically Johnny's terrible. I'm going to make everyone's lives better rather than just mine. Like Martha is the altruist here, or at least, you know, the seeming altruist. But P.S. Johnny hates this platform, obviously, and spends his week of campaigning making sure that everyone knows how much he hates Martha. On the day of the election, well, asterisk, not only he hates Martha, he hates everything that Martha stands for. He hates everyone who supports Martha, and he's going to do his best to take Martha down. So on the day of the election, everyone votes by secret ballot, you know, fourth grade style. You're actually writing it down. You're not just putting your head down on your desk and raising your hand or that's how we used to do it. Anyway, and to many students' relief, Martha wins. She will start being the president next week when the student council starts meeting again. Okay, so I just said everyone's relieved, but guess who's not relieved? Johnny, because Johnny is so annoyed that Martha won that he cannot believe this election was fair. Or even if he like deep down knows it was fair, he's not actually going to admit that it was. And he starts telling his core group of friends that the election was rigged inside and outside the student council, because some of those that core group of friends, remember, who were on the student council, they got reelected. So that core group is so angry that they're like, look. We are going to take over the principal's office. We are going to storm it and mess things up and make sure that they know who's boss. P.S. That's you, Johnny. And that once you're student council president again, everything will be all right. Johnny's like, you know what? That is a great idea. He even gives a big speech to tell them to fight like heck in the face of this change. So unsurprisingly, they storm the principal's office the next day. And start, you know, like pushing folders off the desk. They hide keyboards. You get the picture. Other students start freaking out and ask Johnny as like the head kid at school currently, because remember, he's still student council president for this week, to ask his friends to stop. He ignores all the students who are freaking out for a while, long enough for, you know, damage to be done. And then finally says, go back to class. I love you. You're very special. Meanwhile, in the wake of all of this, the staff has clearly put an end to the student uprising and has sent kids to detention, called parents to pick them up, you name it. But at least two teachers got hurt in all of this, along with several kids. And all the kids are traumatized. So, like, if you're sitting here listening to this, you're like, well, okay, what happens to Johnny? Well, nothing, really. Which is wild. I know. The school says, this was wrong of you, Johnny. You did this. You incited all of this. And Johnny says, well... I didn't really. I mean, I wasn't in the principal's office myself, right? They did what they wanted to do independent of me, and I can't be held liable for that. Okay, like, side note, he's got some complex thinking and expression for fourth graders. (laughs) I know. Let's just, like, suspend disbelief here. Johnny goes on to say, in fact, student council presidents can't be really nothing bad can happen to them, including expulsion, because, you know what, this is such a special role, and... I should be able to run again next year when it's fifth grade. And you know what? I don't even care what you say. Try and expel me. Try and do something bad. I'm going to appeal to the district. They've got the final say here anyway. The school's response, like in the face of Johnny after a serious eye rolling and like, who is this kid anyway? It's like, look, this is ridiculous. 
we've dealt with this in the past. Like we had this past student council president who lied about a bunch of stuff and we expelled him. In fact, our whole school charter states that we should expel you when you do stuff like this. Go ahead and appeal it to the district, but they're going to agree with us as there's nothing out there that says otherwise. And in fact, we hope you do do that right now so that you're actually prevented from running next year when they expel you before that point. Okay, so let me pause here and say, if you've been following along so far, you're amazing. And also, hopefully this helps explain presidential immunity and the case that Trump has been putting forward as he makes this run for the presidency in 2024. Because if you're drawing like the parallels with me, Trump is Johnny, the school and the school charter is the constitution and legal precedent, and the district here is the Supreme Court. Obviously, okay, this isn't a perfect analogy and not totally rooted in the truth of elementary school. Third graders aren't student council president. I get it. So don't come for me over that, okay? But look, this is a really serious claim. If, in fact, a president is immune from prosecution, then the question that Florence Y. Pan, a judge for the D.C. Circuit Court, asked of Trump's attorney during proceedings to determine this very question is terrifying. This is the question. A president could sell pardons, could sell military secrets, could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival. Would such a president be subject to criminal prosecution if he's not impeached? Trump's attorney insisted that for any crime connected to a president's official duties, the political process of impeachment and conviction by the Senate would have to occur before prosecution. Like, let that sink in for a minute. He predicted that if a president was involved in murder, he would be, quote, speedily impeached. And again, like, let's just pause for a second, shall we? Trump's attorney's argument is that, hey, he could have SEAL Team 6 assassinate, you know, President Biden or whomever else he feels is a threat. And then let's just see if he gets impeached. Because in a divided Senate or in a Republican-controlled Senate, would that happen? I think we all know the answer to that. So basically, it means that a sitting president can murder with impunity, right? Especially if that president happens to be Donald Trump. This is not so far outside the realm of reality, friends. And that in particular should make everyone really think for a moment. I'd love that you brought that up because to add to this part of the conversation, Liz Cheney, I got to hear her speak here in Colorado very recently. And Liz Cheney said, people are putting their heads in the sand by saying they're going to vote for someone who might break all the rules because they are hoping and saying that they believe the systems of checks and balances are going to keep this person in check. And her point is just the same as yours. Why would you put someone in power just to test the system? One that we know that has been manipulated, one that we know is basically broken, right? Our current system is not actually functioning that well. And so we need to be putting someone in power who wants to fix democracy, not taking advantage of the brokenness of it for his own personal gain. We can't take that risk because the chances are extremely high. Like he has told us what he is going to do. And there are no checks and balances right now. Yeah, 100%. And I think to add on, that argument that Trump's legal team made is a terrible rewriting of history because guess what? This has actually happened before. Has everyone forgotten Richard M. Nixon, Watergate, illegal activities directed against the Democratic Party? I mean, this wasn't that long ago, right? After Nixon quit being president, it's important to remember that Gerald Ford issued him a pardon for his actions. Guess what innocent people 
or people who have immunity under the Constitution and or laws while being president for criminal activities that happened while they were president don't need? That's right, pardons. There's another related question that I hinted at in my student council example above, which is, if he's not immune from prosecution and he's found to be liable for inciting the insurrection on January 6th, can Trump actually run for president again? And I find this one to be even more important and the argument that Trump's team has put up even more ridiculous because the answer to this is actually rooted in the Constitution. And it's important here to understand why this part was written into the Constitution. I'll give you three guesses. Oh, wait, what's that? Because of another insurrection, ironically? How did you know? But seriously, this part of the 14th Amendment that everyone is suddenly a constitutional scholar about is due to just this. I love both the sarcasm and then also I want to emphasize for those listeners who are new to our show, Misasha is a lawyer and one who takes morals and rights seriously. So you can trust this. I love that you put that in and also like qualified what kind of lawyer I am because I'm sure everyone's like, I know this lawyer. Correct. Because I have now seen lawyers. Yeah. (laughs) There's definitely been other examples that I don't stand by. All right. Well, I'll take it. And let me explain what I meant. So there was this guy, John B. Floyd, who was a slave owner from Virginia and who happened to be President James Buchanan's secretary of war. Buchanan was the president before Lincoln, in case you don't have your presidents memorized in order. Anyway. Let's go back to fourth grade on that one. Right? So he was super mad, see the slaveholder part, when Lincoln won the 1860 election and became the president-elect. And Floyd was not only mad, but he was still the secretary of war until the power transfer, right? Until the inauguration. So what did he do? He got very busy. During the time period between the election and the inauguration, and because he was the secretary of war and had access to these things, Floyd worked to do two things. One, weaken American forces so that Confederate troops could easily take over a number of forts in the South. And two, prevent any form of peaceful transition of power to Lincoln. Does this at all sound familiar? Ulysses Grant, that Ulysses Grant, summed it up like this. Quote, he scattered the army so that much of it could be captured when hostilities should commence and distributed the cannons and small arms from northern arsenals throughout the south so as to be on hand when treason wanted them. Hmm, that sounds strategic. And it also sounds like a violation of his oath of office to uphold and defend the Constitution, especially like once Lincoln took office and he became a Confederate brigadier general who commanded Tennessee's Fort Donaldson. Like he literally joined the Confederate army. I need to interrupt. How did we not learn any of this in school or did we? And I just forgot. But like, I do not recall ever hearing this guy's name. And I haven't seen news media pick up on this story to draw the historic parallels either. So I'm super psyched we have you for this. Yeah, no, I had to dig deep for this one. But like, I didn't learn this in school either. So seems like this is kind of an important part of history, though, because Floyd also participated in an attempt to have violence at the U.S. Capitol actually block the unsealing of electoral votes so that Lincoln could not have taken over the presidency. Again, I ask, does this sound familiar? So look, because of Floyd and his actions, the drafters of the 14th Amendment especially wanted to ensure that people like him, those who had violated their oaths of office at least once, right, couldn't just come back into office because... Along the lines of once people tell you who they are, believe them. Yeah. 
there's a high likelihood he'd do it again. Once a cheater, always a cheater. Or, you know, once an insurrectionist, always an insurrectionist. You get the idea. And so it's beyond ironic that we are back here again, especially considering why the 14th Amendment includes this clause, barring people who have violated their oath of office once from ever running again. But it's also going to be so important to watch what the Supreme Court does here, because if they truly want to uphold the Constitution, they have to strike President, former President Trump from the ballot. But will they do that? Because if not, they're effectively nullifying part of the 14th Amendment. And then what does that say for the future? So really, in sum, if you care about our Constitution, you need to care about presidential immunity. If you care about peaceful transfer of power, you need to care about presidential immunity. If you care about our president being criminally liable for terrible things that they do in office, you need to care about presidential immunity. Because, and if we play this all the way out, and you know, when you do this, it's kind of like thinking about the end of days. If we have a president who is exempt from prosecution for crimes committed in office, then we have a dictator. We no longer have a president. So if you care about democracy, you need to care about presidential immunity. Because some of the scariest threats to freedom come in the form of authoritarian challenges that are hidden in the form of democratic processes. And I was just thinking about this before we hit record. Because you can't really cancel elections per se, right? That is a huge red flag. But can you challenge them through states manipulating electors, through refusal of the vice president to certify election results, through an insurrection? We can't dismiss the question of presidential immunity despite what happens with it in 2024 because it's an open question out there. And it says so much more about where we're heading as a country than the simple question that it purports to be because this shouldn't be a question at all. That's also why we need to care so much. Please continue to follow us at Dear White Women Podcast as we delve into more of these questions around election procedure and issues and... If you've got a topic idea for us, we are all ears or eyes, as the case may be. Send us a DM on Instagram or email us at hello at dearwhitewomen.com, as we would love to hear what you're interested in hearing more about. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list.